as we begin this morning, uh, in light of the events of this week, um, I, I think there's just a few things that I really need to say about where we stand as a church and uh, what we believe and why we believe it and who we are. Um, you know, I, I've mentioned often that we live in a post-Christian society. And I think sometimes that's hard for us to believe because we go outside and we still live in an area that is, has a lot of remnants of Christendom because we live in a rural area. And so sometimes our eyes are blinded to the changes going on all around us throughout our culture, throughout our nation, uh, throughout the world. And when things happen, they catch us maybe more by surprise than, uh, than other places around, around the globe and around our country. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that that in other places that are maybe more populous and, and just closer to the front edges of culture, that tide kind of rises slowly. And we live in the floodplain where the tidal wave just crashes. And so sometimes, uh, for some of us, it'll feel, for some of you, it'll feel like just all this change all at once. But in reality, th- this didn't catch God by surprise. This didn't catch um, many people in the church by surprise. It's been a slow rise of the tide of change over uh, the course of, of, of decades, to be quite honest. But the thing I'm referring to, obviously, if you're totally confused and maybe haven't um, turned on any form of media in three days, um, including newspapers or anything else, is, is the fact that on Friday, uh, our Supreme Court uh, ruled that same-sex marriage would be legal in all 50 states, uh, regardless of of what the states had decreed before or any laws that had been passed. And, you know, again, like I said, many of us, it might have been a surprise the day it happened, but ultimately it wasn't a huge surprise that, that our culture was heading that way. Now, what I do want to remind us of, though, is, is what the Bible actually teaches about these things. And I want you to know where we stand as a church on these things. Because it's good to remember that though culture changes... Uh, do you know Hebrews 13, 8? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His word hasn't changed. It hasn't caught him by surprise. You know what else hasn't changed? Our role as a church, to love people, to care for people, to introduce them to Jesus. That's our mission. Our mission isn't to, to go out and fight every political battle in the world. It's to change hearts with the good news of Jesus Christ. And I thought it might be helpful for us, though. In our bylaws, we have an appendix. And uh, the third appendix is on marriage and sexuality. And I thought I'd just cover maybe a couple of those points so you know where we're at. Also, I included uh, in your bulletin this morning, you're, if you're wondering about this, and maybe you're a visitor and you, you got all this, and you go, whoa, these, what in the world did I step into this morning? Um, this, is a, this is a rare thing for us to dive into some of these issues. Not that we don't dive into these issues, but to present it in, in such a formal manner like this. Um, but, but it's a big change in our culture. It's the mark of some, some big changes for us. And this letter is from the president of the Evangelical Free Church of America. His name is Kevin Compline. He's a former pastor, a missionary, uh, lives in San Jose. But I thought that might be helpful for you. And then in red, there's, some, there's a web address where you can get more information and more links on, I think, some helpful resources in helping you sort through these things and think for them, think about them on your own. Um, I got to tell you, Hannah and I were, were gone last week at the National Conference for the Evangelical Free Church, of which Wallace Bible is a part. 
And I can't tell you how great a thing it is. I wish I could take all of you to see what a great thing it is that we're part of the free church. Um, the, the free church is united around uh, the purpose of making transformational churches among all peoples. Um, you look around our church and we're not very diverse ethnically, which in some ways is kind of sad and I hope that changes. But, but the free church as a whole is very diverse ethnically. It's, one of, uh, it's the second or third most diverse uh, denomination in the United States and North America uh, in terms of, of ethnicities. And it's an exciting thing, but we're all united around these closed-fisted issues of, of the gospel. And this is what we believe, but open-handed on how we live it out and practice different things. Every church is going to be a little different because the person sitting next to you is a little different. You're like, the person next to me is a lot different. Well, that, that's, how, that's how the church is, too. We model that. And uh, the free church is great because we're united around the things that, that matter to be a Christian that are the truth of the gospel. And you need to know... That the denomination you're part of is, uh, is firm in those things. That, that they are not wavering on the truth of the gospel in any way, shape, or form. And uh, you, can, you can rest assured of that. And this letter is an example of, of that. And I'd be glad to talk more to you about free church. If you're coming to membership class tonight, you'll hear more about the free church. Um, free just means every church is, is free to uh, legislate themselves the way they want or organize themselves the way they want, but we're all evangelical in our convictions. So here, here's some things from, uh, from our bylaws, a statement of belief on marriage and sexuality. I'll, I won't cover all of the points, but I will cover a few of them here that are relevant this morning. Number one, Wawasee Bible believes that the term marriage has only one meaning, and that is, and that is marriage sanctioned by God, which joins one man one woman in a single exclusive union as delineated in scripture. We believe that marriage is God's idea. In fact, when you read the Bible, the Bible begins and ends with what? A wedding. First one in a garden, the second one white, bright, and with a big meal. They both sound like a lot of fun. It begins and ends with a wedding. It was God's idea. God gave Adam his bride, he gave to Adam, Eve. And he, he told them that they would become one flesh. It has always been God's design. And it was his institution from the very beginning. And so when we talk about same-sex marriage, I, really it's same-sex marriage. It's a union, but it's not marriage in the sense that the Bible, and as a church we would speak of marriage being a union between one man, one woman, one lifetime. So you need to know that's what we believe. Uh, number two, Wawasee Bible believes that God intends sexual intimacy to occur between a man and a woman who are married to each other. We believe that God has commanded that no intimate sexual activity be engaged in outside of marriage between a man and a woman. And we also believe then, as a result of that, that, that while there is some heterosexual behavior that's sin, all homosexual acts are sin, according to Scripture. Okay? There, now, I'm not saying that if somebody has an attraction that way, that that is necessarily sin. They may be tempted that way. You may be tempted that way. That doesn't necessarily make it sin. It's when we act on our temptation that we sin. Jesus, too, was tempted, but he did not sin, right? The sad part is we're tempted and we often sin. And according to God's word, that is sin. The Bible, Bible believes that God, though, offers redemption and restoration, to all who confess and forsake their sin. 
whatever sin that is, okay? You need to know there's no sin outside the reach of God's grace and God's transforming power. And seek, who, seek, who confess and forsake their sins, seeking his mercy and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And that's where we have forgiveness. That's where we have grace. Another point in the statement reads this way. And this may be the most important for us this morning going forward. Because I think many of you knew that's where we stood in terms of, of biblical marriage. But number six, Wawasee Bible believes that every person must be afforded compassion, love, kindness, respect, and dignity. Every person. Hateful and harassing behavior or attitudes directed toward any individual are to be repudiated and are not in accord with Scripture nor the doctrines of the church. The reality is we're broken people. We're all sinful. We're all pretty messed up. We all have ideas of how other people ought to behave and act. We have prejudices, whether those are racial prejudices or just prejudices based on behavior, thinking that that I'm better than someone else. The reality is that all of us in our sin are completely vile before God apart from Jesus Christ. Now, in light of that, as it relates to, you could relate this to race, but in in the context of our discussion this morning, when it relates to uh, people who identify themselves as, as, as homosexual or transgender or whatever else, listen, there is to be no tolerance for hateful, harassing attitudes or behaviors. And if it comes out of the mouth of someone in your small group, call them out immediately because that's not love. Because when we think that way and when we talk that way, what happens is that's just a revelation of our heart. And if our heart's going to change to actually love people who are sinners just like us and who, yes, need to repent just like us, then we need to love them. Because you know what? While they sin and while sadly they identify themselves and find their identity in their sin, and maybe this is, this is you, and if you do, don't find your identity in your sin. Find it in Jesus Christ. The truth is that all people bear the image of God, so all people matter to God, and all people ought to matter to you. Amen? Amen. So let's be defined by grace. We've been talking about that, haven't we? Let's be defined by love for people. Not that we tolerate sin. We confront sin. But we do it in the way that Jesus did, with love and with grace and with truth. See, sadly, sometimes people, there's kind of of two wrong approaches to this in the church. There's one approach that says, you know what? We're just going to go all the way this way and we're just going to allow everything and just, you know, everything's okay. And, you know, they, they take what's in, an, what's in the closed hand in terms of what's, what's core, and they open it up and say, yeah, we can get rid of this, we can get rid of this, it's okay, and we'll just we welcome everybody. Okay, no. Do we welcome everybody? Let me say that again. Yes. Do we, do we tolerate sin, though? No. The other side of it, though, so they got the kindness part down. The other side goes to the other extreme, and uh, they read, Repent! And they shout, repent. And they open up the word and they repent. And then they take the word and boom, repent. They bring the hammer down. 
And there's no room for kindness over here, but just repentance. And, and there's, there's anger and idiocy, to be quite honest, that just causes more division. And they don't realize they're just as bad as the group over here that extended all kindness at the expense of the gospel because they're talking about repentance apart from the kindness of the gospel, which the kindness of God is what leads us to repentance, according to Paul in Romans. The key is both. We're kind, we're loving, but we also preach repentance. We have things we stand on. Now, I believe that the things that are happening in our culture... uh, This morning's message, by the way, comes at a pretty sovereign time. You know, I I take time to plan out messages usually six months to a year in advance. I know what I'm preaching every Sunday up through the end of the year right now or what's being taught. I just trust God for the timing. Today's just happened to be on the day that we're talking about this. And you'll see where I'm going here as we get into the text. But I believe the things that are happening now is God getting us, getting the attention of the church in, in North America. And in America, particularly, he's calling us to repentance. He's calling us to turn to him. He's, you know what he's calling us to? To do what he told us to do in the first place. See, here's the deal. I believe that, that all the things we're seeing right now is the result of a lack of the church doing what it ought to have been doing for the last 30, 40, 50 years. And you're like, yeah, they ought to be in the, in the courts. In the... No, 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 that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about political agenda. I'm talking about discipleship. The church has failed at discipleship. Because you can't legislate morality. I mean, to an extent you can, but the thing that's going to change the country is not passing a law. It's not, now that may help. I'm not saying don't fight for those things, right? I'm not saying that. Don't, don't think I'm going crazy. But, but I'm saying that's not the end all. If you want to see things change, people's hearts need to change. And that happens through discipleship. And curiously, that's the command Jesus gave us before he left. He said, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold... Remember this phrase, because it comes up in the text this morning too. I'm with you always to the end of the age as you do this. I'm with you always. Loved ones, the truth is, in our culture, the church has lost the battle on these things. There's still things to fight for. There's still things to to press on for. But the reality is we've, we've lost that battle. And in some ways, I think God has maybe allowed that to happen so he'd say, hey, start focusing on what you're supposed to do and those things will take care of themselves. Disciple people. So, you know, we don't get politically active on many things as a church, hardly any, unless it's a clear moral violation of scripture, which this would be one. We have a stand. Here's where we're at. I've laid it out. However... You know, if someone would come to me and say, hey, I, I think, Josh, you ought to get active and do this and do this and do this like we are. And I would say, first off, before you get active doing this and this and this, who are you discipling? Who are you pouring your life into? Who are you reproducing to love and know Jesus? Because you know what? If you're not doing that, then you're missing the first thing Jesus told us to do. Let's get on mission with that. And by the way, speaking of the free church, the vision for the free church 
I told you it's purpose to multiply transformational churches among all people, but the vision is this. Here's what leaders have been praying for for the last year or two in the EFCA. We're praying that God will raise up one million disciple makers impacting millions with the gospel, transforming entire cities and regions globally. It's a big prayer. Amen. Amen. And our movement, just so you know, it consists of about 1,500 churches across the United States, 375,000 people. It's uh, 600 people who work with our mission sending agency, Reach Global. And so countless churches that have been planted around the world through the EFCA. And we're committed to making disciples. And that's what we're about. Jesus first and making disciples. Amen. And we're going to love people. But we're also going to stand on the truth. And as it relates to same-sex marriage, you've heard me say it. I'll say it again. It's wrong. It's unbiblical. And it's sin. However, those are people made in the image and likeness of God, just like you and me. They matter to God. They matter to us. And we best love them. And the only way we do that is by loving Jesus first and then making disciples. Amen? Well, with that, let's open up the book. Let's open up God's word. Philippians chapter 4 is where we're at this morning. And uh, in Philippians chapter 4, we've been in this series called Rejoice, My Choice. Paul says to rejoice is something I choose. It's something that you and I choose. We choose to rejoice. Maybe you've been a little discouraged this week at some of this news. I'll be honest, I have. But at the same time, what do I do? I choose to rejoice. And how do I do that? Well, I choose to dwell on God's grace. Here's the definition we've got, right? To dwell on God's grace. To quit worrying about all the things going on around me and to dwell on God's grace to me. And let it define me and define my life. Reveling in it. Because it supersedes any and every other thing. We're going to be talking about what it looks like, that second part, what it looks like to live a life defined by grace today. Because if we're going to accomplish the mission of making disciples, we've got to be a people defined by God's grace. We've got to be a people who understand and dwell on God's grace and live it out. And by defined by it, I mean it affects the way we live. It affects the way we live and love other people. Let me read Philippians chapter 4. Then we'll pray and then we'll dive into the text this morning. And look what it looks like to live a life defined by grace. Let's, Let's read together. I entreat Euodia, <clears throat> excuse me, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord, Paul writes. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thank you for your grace to us through him. 
Lord, we're completely hopeless. I'm completely hopeless apart from your grace. I deserve your wrath. I deserve an eternity in hell paying the penalty for my sin. Yet while I ran from you, you ran for me. You chased me, you loved me. You brought me back to be your own. I pray that for anyone here who doesn't know the truth of your gospel, that today maybe they would turn and repent. That's all it means, and turn to you in saving faith and become yours. Holy Spirit, I pray this morning um, that you'd work through me and in me and uh, that my words would be your own as we teach and study God's word together. I pray against the enemy, the way he would uh, twist your word and uh, accuse us, tempt us, cause us... uh, um, to think wrongly about it, but instead work in a powerful way to change our hearts, to make us more like Jesus, to be defined by your grace. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we're in the text this morning, what maybe you noticed already is Paul's wrapping up his letter. And really what, what we're looking at this morning could be divided into a handful of different messages but it's just, he's just writing the letter. He covers this thing and he covers this thing and he covers, reminds him of this thing. And he's kind of wrapping things up as he's wrapping up his letter over these last couple weeks. <clears throat> and he begins by addressing two women, Euodia and Syntyche. You know anybody by those names? I don't either. But I wouldn't have even known they were women though until he says later, help these women. And he makes it clear. That's who it is. He entreats them, he urges them, he begs them to agree in the Lord. Now, think about it. When this letter was written by Paul, it wasn't sent out by email. They didn't all get printed copies like you got a letter from Kevin Compton this morning from the ESCA in your bulletin, right? They didn't all have their own copy. It just, it got up and, and somebody like me would just read it to the church. Now, all of us have different Um, How do we say this? We don't get along with everybody in the same way, right? And we we kind of have beefs with different people, and and that's that's kind of what family is, even in the church. We're messed up, and there's some some rivalry there. And how would you like it, though, if your feud with somebody was so prominent and so ongoing and so lasting that I got up and addressed it in front of everybody? Everybody? How'd you feel? You'd feel about this tall, wouldn't you? Like, I I suppose I, maybe I ought to do something about this and forgive them. That's what happens here. Paul calls these two women out in front of the whole church in a letter. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche, agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion... Now, true companion there in the ESV is what it, it says, and your text may actually have a proper name by the name of, uh, I better look at this so I say it right, Sizagos. Is that right? And if that's the case, and I think that's probably more correct, I think it probably is a proper name, some guy named Sizagos, but it can, it, his name means, if that's, if that's right, I might be wrong, his name means true companion. So, so modern translations oftentimes just leave it as, well, maybe that's all Paul was saying was true companion. Because in the, in the Koine Greek like that, there wasn't capital letters where you knew it was a proper name. It was all just lowercase letters all the way through. And so we're not sure. But in any case, he, he asks this other person, whether he names them or they just know who they are, uh, to help these ladies figure it out. And he explains a little bit of why. 
He says, they've labored side by side with me in the gospel together. Together with Clement. He's, we don't know who he is either. We, he's likely a, an elder in the church in Philippi or some kind of leader. Along with the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. They, they need to recognize me. And they're, they're part of the church. They're, they're written in God's book of life. The book of life, that term dates back to the Old Testament. And, and many believe that maybe it was even borrowed out of culture where in cities there would be this registrar or this list, this official registry of citizens of that city called the book of life of that city. And, and it's referred to as the book of life in terms of who's part of God's family, who are his children. And the Bible speaks, if you're, if you're really saved, if you've really trusted Christ and turned to him, your name is in the book of life. And it's not going to be blotted out. It's not going to be erased. It's, it's there in ink. And you're his. And Euodia and Syntyche, their names, like all these others, are in the book of life. And Paul says, now because of that, you've got to help them agree. You've got to help them quit fighting. Now I've told you over and over, when Paul writes this letter, he's not writing in such a way that he's addressing a major uh, theological fallacy or something like that in the church in Philippi. This tends to be a church that has it going on, and they got a lot of good things going. But you know what comes up over and over as Paul writes? Is this idea of unity. And this, this, this trickle in, these, these kind of cracks in the armor, where the unity could be broken, and then all kinds of division, and all hell could break loose in the church. You see it where he talks about being of one mind together in the Lord. You see it where he talks about having the mind of Jesus Christ, which is already yours. And and then he he speaks of it here where he says, I entreat them, I urge them, I exhort them, agree in the Lord, have unity. Agree on everything? Does he say that? No. He says agree in the Lord because you're, you're both in the book of life. You both love Jesus. Why is there division there? Why are you holding on to bitterness? Why, why are you doing that? You need to agree. Because your division, your small division, could fissure into a huge crack in the whole church. See, unity relates to where we're at in terms of being on mission, making disciples, but it also relates to where we're at as individuals because we're all pretty selfish. <laughs> Every one of us. And when we focus on ourselves and we don't agree to agree with one another and even agree to disagree in some ways with one another, we can get really bitter and we can get unforgiving and we can go, yeah, but you don't know what they said to me. Yeah, but you don't know what they did to me. You don't know what they didn't say to me. They've never come to ask for forgiveness. There's no way I'm forgiving them. There's no way. I can't do it. That's the issue here. It's an issue of forgiveness. And what God's calling you here to, to be defined by grace means, number one, you give grace. You give grace. To be defined by grace means you give grace. You might just write underneath it, you've learned to forgive. Now, here's what's curious. Paul also writes, and he says to Sisygos, or the true companion, whoever this is, he asks them to, to step in and help mediate between these two people. It was such a division that there had to be a mediator. And, and many of us, we've... we've Experience that to greater and lesser degrees in our lives. If, if you have a brother or sister, mom and dad every now and then stepped in in Sisygus to mediate the argument, right? And, and to, to sort things out and, and get it figured out between the two of you. And, and he's the mediator between these two women. He says, help them agree in the Lord. Help them 
Forgive one another. Help them come together and see eye to eye. And yet maybe each of them are saying, yeah, but he didn't, she, she didn't reach out to me. She, she still holds this. And you know what forgiveness is? It's, it's not about the other person. Forgiveness is about you. Forgiveness is, is the thing that's hard to do for the person who's been offended. Not the one who offended. Forgiveness is hard for the person offended. And they're the ones who have to, by their will, enact forgiveness. Now, sometimes when you've, we've all done stupid things and we need to go ask forgiveness of other people, right? That's a godly thing as well. But ultimately, the task of forgiveness is on the person who's been offended. And usually in our messed up relationships, it's both directions. And he needed, they needed a mediator to help sort things out and say, okay, yeah, here's what they're saying, here's what they're saying. You know what's curious, though, about the gospel? Is that God, the one who was offended by my sin and by your sin, he's the one who stepped in to mediate. He's the one who came close in the person of Jesus Christ. And he's both the forgiver and the mediator. And he stepped in while I was yet his enemy. And Jesus died on the cross for me and offered me his forgiveness. And there's one mediator, the man, Jesus Christ, the God, Jesus Christ, who steps in and reconciles us to God. And because of that, our names are written in the book of life. And I think Paul's argument here is because of that, you ought to model that as a disciple of Jesus, becoming like him to where you too step in and forgive and draw near and let it go. Does it mean you totally forget what happened? No. It's nonsense to, to teach that God forgets our sin. He do, it does say in the Bible that he remembers it no more, meaning that he no longer holds it against us, but he's omniscient. He can't forget it. But he doesn't hold it against us, does he? He doesn't hold it against us. He, he doesn't record it to our account. He blots it out. And he forgives us. He shows us what? Grace. And so to forgive means to give grace. And if my life is defined by the grace of God toward me, then you know what else that means? That means I give grace like Jesus gives grace. That's number one. And he says in verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord. Find your joy in the Lord. Dwell on his grace. The Lord is an inexhaustible source of joy, Jesus says. Root your joy there. Dwell in his grace. Jesus says this. He says, these things I've spoken to you that your joy may be in you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. He speaks more about it in John 15. You might jot that down, the first 11 verses. He talks about being the vine, and, uh, and, and anyone who's attached to the vine receives his life. And, and the whole idea, he goes, he goes on as he, as he works through it. He says, abide in him. Abide in his love. Keep his commandments. Love him. Obey him. And he gets to verse 11. He says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. How many times does Paul say to rejoice in the Lord? When? Always. That means um, how, how often? Always. Thanks. Yeah, I just, I'm, I'm slow. So I need your help. Always. When, uh, when we see culture imploding around us, what do we do? Do we freak out? 
Do we run and hide? Do we fear? Do we get paranoid? No. What do we do? We rejoice. You know why? Because it means we're a day closer today to Jesus' return than we were yesterday. And tomorrow we'll be even closer if he doesn't come today. And we rejoice because he's shown us grace. And he's given us the opportunity to show grace to other people who, if you ever wondered if they needed it, man, living today, you know people need grace. So give grace. And in case you forgot, hey, Paul, sorry, I forgot. What was that? Again, I say rejoice in verse 4. Quit dwelling on the ways you've been wronged because we've all been wronged. And I'm not saying you haven't, and I'm not saying it's not a big thing, and I'm not saying it's not hard. But I'm saying work toward knowing God's grace to you and extending his grace to others. Because holding on to the bitterness of unforgiveness is hurting no one but you. And extend God's grace. He goes on, he says in verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Reasonableness, your translation may actually say, let, have a gentle attitude, attitude toward all people. Have a gentle spirit. Literally, it's let your forbearance be known to all men. Be patient. Be reasonable. Be willing to admit when you're wrong. Be willing to hear other people out. Don't jump to conclusions. The second thing, we need to be reasonable. When, when grace defines my life, I'm reasonable. Have an attitude that doesn't seek retaliation and doesn't seek your own interests, but seeks the interests of other people. That applies to every area of our life, doesn't it? That applies to marriage, that applies to parenting, that applies to my work, that applies to every relationship in my life. To be reasonable, to not seek my own interests, but to seek the interests of others. To come about life with a gentle attitude and a gentle spirit. To be reasonable. Paul talks about this other times too. And I think in the interest of unity for the church in Philippians chapter 2. He says in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests. But also to the interests of others. Paul's focus on unity and selflessness. It just makes me wonder. There had to be some strong personalities in this church. That sometimes tended to fight for their own way. And sometimes tended to be a little brash. And come across as, what a jerk. All I did was say, maybe we should do this. And he, you don't have to jump down my throat, dude. Maybe there are just personalities like that. And Paul's like, hey, be reasonable. Let your reasonableness, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. To all men, everybody. In the church and outside of the church. You know what that means for us in light of the, the discussion we just had? The, the truth of the matter is, there's been people who've come through our church. There's people in our church who struggle with same-sex attraction, who struggle with these things. There are. Not a person, people. And we need to love them with grace and be reasonable and, and, and extend kindness to them, but also remind them, repent. Turn to Jesus Christ. He loves you. Not to just freak out and start waving, you know, stomping around with the signs and no, love people. Be reasonable. Why? Well, Paul says, because the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand, the end of verse 5. This could be taken one of two ways. It could either be talking about space or time. So he could say, the Lord's at hand. He's, he's right here, right now. Or he could be talking about time. The Lord's at hand. Like his coming is soon. He's coming soon. The, re- the reality is both are true. God is omnipresent. 
He's here right now in this place. The, the other is true also, that Jesus is coming back soon. And so because of that, both because of God's presence with us all the time and in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back, which is great news and a reason we don't have to be afraid, and a reason we press on making disciples, because of that, we ought to be reasonable. So if grace defines us, we give grace and we're reasonable. You might jot this, this reference down. 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 8, and you can read through the end of the chapter. And, and Paul talks about, because of the day that's coming, let us be sober and encourage one another and, and love other people. He talks about it also in Romans uh, chapter 12. I'll read this to you. Chapter 12, starting in verse 14. He has a whole list of instructions in Romans, but here's just a few of them in Romans chapter 12. He says, I think this relates to us being reasonable and being gentle. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own eyes, in your own sight. Repay, one ev- never, or repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. So I'm to give grace... I'm to be reasonable. Number three, a, a third, I guess, fruit in a sense of being defined by God's grace is that I have God's peace. I have God's peace. Look at verses six and seven. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. He, he, uh, you don't really need to break that down. He's just saying the same thing in a couple ways. Prayer and supplication. By prayer, by talking to God, by pleading with him, With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know, the the Philippians had more than enough reason for worry and anxiety in their day. They had threats of persecution from the government. They had threats of um, their neighbors, both personally and nationally and As the days go on in our culture, we have more and more days to be anxious, more and more reasons to be anxious, more and more things to worry about. But Paul has great words for us. What's he say? Do not be anxious. Don't worry. Hakuna Matata. Don't be anxious, Paul says. About what? Yeah, but Paul, you don't know what's going on, man. I'm freaking out. Like everything, I'm I'm worrying about this and I'm worrying about this. He's like, well... About anything. Anything covers how many things? Anything. Like, thanks, Captain Obvious. But it's true. Don't be anxious about anything. And literally, he says, he says it this way. He says, um, in nothing, be anxious. And then right after that, he says, but in everything. Make your request known to God. In nothing be anxious, in nothing worry, but in everything 
let your request be known to God. And the peace of God will, it passes all understanding. You're like, Paul, you don't understand. That's so hard. And, and I know for, for, for some people, even physically, physiologically, medically, anxiety is a huge issue. And it's hard. And you're plagued by that. So we look at that and we go, okay, so how? Well, thankfully, Paul gives a little bit of how. He says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, in other words, get on your knees, beg him, ask him, spend time with him, talk to him as a friend. Peter says it like this, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. But do it, how should we pray? With thankfulness. You know, all throughout scripture, whenever Paul gives instructions, over and over, when he gives instructions, especially in how we pray and in how we behave, he always talks about being thankful. It's combined with all kinds of different things. It's combined with rejoicing. It's combined with prayer. It's combined with fill in the blank. Be thankful. Hey, don't forget, be thankful. Why? Because, again, we're all selfish and we all start complaining. Oh, this, this, this podium rocks. It's not straight. Oh, it drives me nuts. I can complain. Right? Joshua Shu is untied while he's walking around. It drives me nuts. I'm, I'm a little OCD. It makes me anxious. God, make him tie his shoe. No, like, don't, you know, don't be anxious. But, but present your request to God. Maybe, maybe you pray that. Paul says in everything, so that'd be something. You can pray about anything, everything, but do it with thankfulness. Do it with thankfulness. Don't don't just bring your list of complaints to him. In fact, I would say start with thankfulness. And then suddenly, you know what happens is my complaints and all the things I'm worried about and all my anxieties tend to sort of trickle away. And I can begin praying more deeply and I recognize his peace, which is exactly what Paul says. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You're like, I, I don't know, I've, I've heard of peace. No, this is, this is peace that surpasses understanding. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And, and I can tell you from, from some of the things that, um, that, that I went through last fall with, with my dad being sick and other things, until you're in that storm, and like we sang, the oceans rise, and you're in a spot where your feet will fail. Until you're in that spot, you're, you're, and, and when you're in that spot, you go there, that makes, there's no way. But when you rejoice, when you, re, you present your request to God and you turn to him, there is a peace. Now, it doesn't make everything just magically go away. It's not like God waves a magic wand. No, life's good. It's not like that. No problems. No, there's still problems. It's still hard. But, but there's a peace that makes no sense. Like, I don't get it but I'll take it. Thanks, Jesus. And Paul says it'll guard you. Now, what's happening to Paul right now as he's writing this? Do you remember? He's in prison and he's being guarded 24-7. And it's curious that this is the phrase he uses. His peace will guard you, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I think in Paul's mind, he's going, boy, you know, I'm guarded from people who would want to kill me. I'm also guarded from being able to leave and go do whatever I want by this guy who's chained to me 24-7. That's probably a good thing. That one, people can't kill me, and two, I can't do whatever I want. That's probably good. Hmm, God's peace is a lot like that. God guards me. 
He, he, he protects me from evil. He protects me from the anxieties and the worries and the concerns of the world. But he also guards me in the sense that he doesn't just let me take off and run and do stupid things. He guards me. I think that's probably the image in Paul's mind as he's talking about God's peace guarding us, our hearts and our minds. Well, we give grace, we're reasonable, we have God's peace. Number four, we focus on and live out, for lack of a better way to say it, right things. We focus on and we live out right things. Finally, Paul writes in verse eight, finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever's commendable. If there's any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You know, it's curious too, it just occurs to me even as I say this, maybe you're still struggling with that first one and forgiveness is an issue for you and you're struggling to forgive. Sometimes maybe it begins in verse eight where your opinion and your view I don't know, I'm just I'm shooting off the cuff here, which is dangerous. But maybe part of your, your opinion and view needs to change of that person. You need to love them and think things that are true and that are honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent about that person and worthy of praise. And maybe God would begin to change your heart so you could forgive. Bonus. But Paul gives this list of how we should think and what we should focus on. Literally, it's fill your mind with these things. Keep it in mind. Think it about. Think about it. But it's more than just thinking. It's more than just taking it into account. It's putting it into action. As James would say in James one twenty two, don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. In other words, choose to dwell on God's grace, but also let it define you. Let it define you in your action. Think about these things and live it out. these things need to be transformed into action. It reminds me of Paul's words to the Colossians in chapter 3, starting in verse 15. He says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. He's always talking about being thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You need to focus on the right things. Paul's concerned with your mind. You know, you've heard the phrase, right? I think, therefore I am. And I think the reason that strikes a chord with so many people throughout history is the fact that, in a real sense, there's some truth to that. And how we think and how we think about God's grace and dwell on it and see ourselves in light of who we are in light of the cross, not our sin, Affects the way we live. Affects the way we treat people. So think about things that are right and lovely and admirable and commendable and excellent. Anything that's worthy of praise, think on these things, Paul says. And he says in verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Paul says again, hey, just follow me. I'm, I'm struggling at this, but I'm getting it. I'm doing better. Imitate me as I imitate Jesus. What you see in me, practice these things. And he leaves a promise, the same promise that Jesus left in the Great Commission. The same promise that Joshua received from God. It's the same promise Moses received. It's the same promise Paul received. 
It's the same promise all the disciples received. It's the same promise you and I received. The God of peace will be with you. Always. When I'm defined by God's grace, the fifth thing is I experience, because it's always there, it's just a matter of how, to the, the degree to which I experience and know it and believe it, God's continual presence. When I'm defined by his grace, I give grace because I've been given grace. I'm reasonable. With a gentle spirit, I hear people out and I love them, even if we butt heads a little bit. When I'm defined by God's grace, I have God's peace and I focus on right things. And in all of it, I experience God's presence through it all. Loved ones, that begins if you've never trusted Jesus Christ with repenting and turning to him in faith. He's the prince of peace. He's the one who gives peace and makes peace between you and God. Who, I say this in love, is incredibly angry with our sin, but also loves you incredibly. Tim Keller says it like this, you are horrifyingly, maybe he doesn't say it exactly like this, but here's what he says, you are horrifyingly, horribly worse than you could ever imagine in your sin. Yet, you are more loved than you could ever dream by Jesus Christ. Turn to him and trust him. He loves you. Be defined by his grace. Let's pray. Father, thanks for Jesus and thanks for your grace to us through him. Father, help us as individuals, as a church, um, to not be dismayed by the things happening in our culture, to not be afraid or paranoid, to not um, uh, turn and swing fists to fight for things that... um, in the dark world, people don't know better, but instead to light the candle, to, to, to be defined by your grace in a world that's in desperate need of Jesus. Where we need to forgive, help us to forgive. Where we need to be reasonable, help us to repent and be reasonable. Where we need um, to have your peace, help us to uh, lay our anxieties down and claim your peace and turn to you and trust you and Father, where we need to just think differently, help us to think about things that are right. Let us just be defined by your grace and know your presence in all things. Through Jesus, you promised, you promised, and you keep your promises that you would be with us always to the very end. Thank you. Lord, we love you. Thanks that you loved us first. We pray all this through our Savior, Jesus. Amen.